And on Sunday evening, uh, we usually attempt to just take a book and study a book or some special theme from the scripture. And so we're studying from the book of Acts, the development of the Christian church. Now, if you need a worksheet, lift your hand up and we'll get you one. Wilder, there's somebody right in front of you there. Thank you. Just lift your hand right like this and we'll get one of these worksheets to you. We're in the second chapter of the book of Acts. And we begin reading tonight at verse 41, the care and the feeding of 3,000 babies or spiritual pediatrics might be a good subtitle for this sermon. Wouldn't it be wonderful if, I think it probably a dream that any pastor could have would be to be able to, to stay in a church long enough where uh, he could look back someday and just see that he has really taught the Word of God and has taught the major themes of the Scripture and the, Bi and the books of the Bible to his members. I think that would be the most rewarding thing that anybody could ever, could ever experience in life. I'm not sure that, uh, that as a young person growing up, I really um, had uh, a, a pastor who taught me the Scripture, taught me the Word of God. I think I did. I'm not sure that I was listening that well. But I do know that the greatest growing that I've ever done in my Christian life was under uh, great Bible teaching. And uh, that is the goal and objective that I think that, that I've had for the last few years in the pastorate. Now chapter 2, verse 41 reads, So then those who had received His word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together, and all had things in common, or had all things in common, and they began selling their property and possessions and with sharing, and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. And day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. <clears throat> I heard someone saying not too long ago that that he was talking to a young medical student who was just getting out of med school, had, um, had been involved in his residency and his internship, and he was in conversation with this young med student. And he asked him, have you decided what field of medicine you're going to specialize in? And well, he said, no, I really haven't decided what um, area I'm going to um, concentrate in, or field of medicine I'm going to specialize in, not real sure about it, but he said, 
I know one field of medicine that I am not going to specialize in. He said, I can tell you what I am not going to do. He said, I am not going to be a pediatrician. <laughs> Isn't it amazing how these little beings that come into our life can bring moments of ecstasy and months of agony? James Dobson um, is a Christian psychologist who has committed his life to the, uh, to the ministry of the family, and he's written a book entitled What Wives Wished Their Husbands Knew About Women. And in a chapter on this book, in this book, he gives 10 reasons why women struggle. Do you know what is the top of the list? Uh, low self-esteem. One reason why women are so unhappy is low self-esteem. Number two, why women struggle is the responsibility of the children. There's a tremendous responsibility to raise little ones, to raise children, isn't, isn't it? Children cannot raise themselves properly. You just, it would be nice if you could just kind of bring them into the world and put them out here and let them you know, spring up, so to speak, and do it on their own without any care or keeping. It just doesn't work that way. Not too long ago, an eminent sociologist visited some of the major penal institutions of America to find out what went wrong with men and women who suddenly became bad. He was looking for a kind of a common denominator that he could find in each one of these cases that might be some clue as to what happens to people that causes them to become criminal. He thought at first that it might be poverty because of pure economic environment and surroundings. It wasn't that at all. There was one fundamental characteristic that was just like a thread that ran through the lives of each one of these people in, this, in these penal institutions. It was this, an absence of adult contact in early life. They either became uh, loners and they spent their time all alone or they spent most of their time with their peers and there was no real contact or influence from adults. And the conclusion is inescapable. There is no substitute for loving parental leadership in early childhood development. Let me say that again. There is no substitute for loving parental leadership in early childhood development. And what is true in the physical realm is also true in the spiritual realm. I want you to imagine what was happening now in this early church in Jerusalem that we find in the book of Acts. There was just an explosion in the nursery. And there were 120 disciples after Jesus ascended into heaven. And all of a sudden, after one sermon, there were 3,000 babies born. And here was this group of Christians all of a sudden with 3,000 new believers. And they cannot raise themselves properly. And it is essential that there be some contact with a mature adult Christian who will guide them and train them and teach them. And all of a sudden, 120 believers were responsible for 3,000 spiritual babies. And they had no handbook to go by. And there were no guidelines. And they had no Bible. And there was no 
paid staff member, no pastor, and there was no church meeting place, and they lived in a hostile environment that was set upon exterminating the Christian church. And all of a sudden, overnight, here were these 3,000 new Christians. What do you do with them? I want you to sit, join with me as I set the scene and follow the little outline. There was in this place, in Jerusalem, in this time, at this point, salvation. The Scripture says that they received the Word. They were born again. There was a new birth. Um, occasionally I have the opportunity of, of sitting down eyeball to eyeball and face to face with somebody and uh, share with them the Word of God, the Gospel. And in a quiet and dynamic moment, they just receive that Word with gladness. Not only do they receive the Word of the Scripture, they receive the living Word into their life. And Jesus Christ enters their life as I present the Word and begins to live in their heart, and they're born again. It's a marvelous thing. The greatest experience that can happen to any person is the experience of receiving the Word of God, the living Word, to live in his life. And the greatest experience that can ever come to a Christian is to be there when that happens, to see somebody invite the living Word into his heart. They received the Word. They were born again. There was the declaration. They were baptized. They publicly declared their faith. They didn't hide their faith. They presented themselves as disciples to be baptized. They identified themselves with Jesus Christ, the one who died and rose again, and they said, I'm a part of him. Occasionally, I have led someone to faith in Jesus Christ. They've received the word, but they've never declared their faith. That's just as essential. They stood to declare their faith, and they were baptized. So there were 3,000 who claimed Jesus as their Savior and 3,000 who were baptized. And then there was this addition. They were added about 3,000 souls. Notice that it was the Lord who did the adding. And he added someone to, some, to someone else. He added someone to something. He added someone to another. It was the Lord who did the adding. Now get this, watch this. A person who, who becomes a Christian may say, I don't want to be a part of the church. Whether he wants to be or not, he is. For the moment he receives the Lord Jesus into his life, he receives the Word, the Lord adds him at that time to the body. He is a part of the believing body of believers. And whether or not you want to be responsible for another is not optional. For when you became a part of the body of Jesus Christ, you became a part of that to which the Lord adds every time. And He adds to our fellowship. He adds to us a responsibility. Now, you may not want a, a baby to be born into your family, but, it, you know, God does that. He, he does the adding. And He was adding together. He was building into the dynamic into the body that which would make it self-sustaining. He was adding the dynamics that would build up this body. In our society, we have a built-in system to provide life. It's called a mother and a daddy. And in this built-in system, 
to provide life, the mother and the daddy producing life in, in, in the cooperation of, of God in creation. And in the family that the mother and daddy has, there is the nurturing of that child. And God has so designed in His marvelous providence and will a built-in system to provide life. It's called the church. And in the church and through the church, God adds to the body the dynamics that will make it self-sustaining. And it is within the church that the nurturing and the, and the building up and the edification and the training of those babies, those children, those new Christians is to take place. And the church becomes the seedbed out of which these new plants grow and produce fruit of their own. Now look at the priorities of, of the people, the priorities of the church. You know, I was looking at this the other day and just trying to determine in my mind what is the priority of the church. Right there it is in verse 42 and following. The priorities of the church. Number one is teaching. Look at verse 42. And they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. It is obvious that the apostles were doing the teaching. Now they met, obviously, in several different locations because there was no public meeting place for the church and there wasn't a place, maybe the Colosseum, where 3,000 people could get together at one time, but they met in separate locations, in different locations, and the apostles did the teaching. And they met at, uh, at, at different times because the apostles couldn't be everywhere at the same time, and so they might meet at this place on one time for teaching, and this place at another time for teaching, and this place at another time for teaching. You know, now that, that seems like heresy, but they didn't just have Sunday school at 9.30 on Sunday morning. I've wrestled with a for a long time. At, when I was at North Fort Worth Baptist Church, I thought I might be in a position to develop what I believe is real New Testament, uh, the, uh, real New, uh, New Testament structuring of the church. And it didn't really work out like I wanted it to, but it seems to me that the church that functions as the New Testament church is a church that meets all over town and the Word of God is being taught there and learned there and studied there. Wouldn't that be marvelously wonderful if that could happen? Out in the dorm, it's happening, I understand. Do, do, do you all have places where you study the Word of God throughout the dorm during the week? It seems to me that it might be just the most dynamic thing that could ever happen to Durant if all over town at certain hours of the, of the day, at certain times during the week, there might be just little cell groups who are together studying the Word of God. They were being taught and the apostles were doing the teaching. Now there's something to be said about the sharing groups, you know, about uh, the body life type concept of of, uh, of worship and, 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 and getting together where we share what God is doing in our life and what experiences we're having. And I don't minimize those at all, at all, but if you want to grow as a Christian, you have to study the Word of God. And what did they teach? 
They didn't have the letters that you and I have, the epistles, and they didn't have the gospels. They didn't have the Bible, the New Testament that I'm holding in my hand. They had the Old Testament, the law and the prophets, and they had the audible teachings of Jesus that they had committed to their memory. But when they got together, they opened up the Old Testament, the law and the prophets, and they shared the audible teachings of Jesus, and they grew as they taught the Word of God to these people. If you're going to grow as a Christian, you've got to have the teaching of the Word. Now I imagine that most of us who are here tonight have some kind of Bible study every Sunday morning. I imagine that you're somewhere studying the Bible every Sunday morning. I think that I'm seeing a kind of a shift in my lifetime, the latter years of, of my ministry, toward a de-emphasis of the Sunday school and a re-emphasis of the preaching service. You cannot minimize the biblical teaching, the, the, the teaching of the Bible, if you're going to grow as a Christian. You've got to have it. It's like raising a baby. I don't know whether some of you can remember that maybe such a long time ago, but I can remember. Along about 3 o'clock in the morning, that alarm rings. Now, it's not that electric alarm, alarm that sits on the, on the desk, on the, on the night table. It's that baby, you know, back off over in the other part of the room, and he begins to scream at the top of his voice. I thought I might do that tonight, but I'm not in the best voice. And, and my wife and I had a little plan that we developed. She fed the baby, and I prayed for her, you know. You get, up and, uh, you get up and feed the baby and I'll be praying for you. No, that's not true. But up in the middle of the night and you get into the kitchen stumbling around, you get that bottle, you know, heat it up on the stove, get it too hot, have to run the cold water on it. And after a while, you get in there where that baby is screaming his lungs out and you, you know, plug that in and everything's all right. And without that milk, that baby will never grow. And there's a kind of an alarm clock in the spiritual, in, in one's spiritual life. It just kind of goes off and bells ring. And that growth will never take place in your life without the study of the Word of God. They were teaching. Secondly, they had fellowship. There was koinonia. Now listen to me, folk, because I'm talking tonight about what it really means to have a New Testament church. They had koinonia. Now that's not fellowship and punch in the fellowship hall. That's not cookies and Kool-Aid in the fellowship hall. The word koinone means commonness. They had partnership. The koinone Greek was the common the Greek of the common people. They, they had partnership. They had a commonness. There was a partnership that began to develop in the church. Now I um, I got on um, I got in with um, on this little party Friday night and these uh, groups of uh, the, the couples department and uh, and this group went out and we had our progressive dinner and we had a great time and there was this kind of a sharing time together a fellowship that we enjoyed together and I I got to thinking about that you know that that department down there does a lot of that and that's good I wonder how much of that we're doing. I wonder how much we 
realize that we're in partnership together and how much there is really sharing. And I watched a young couple come in this morning. They're not here tonight. They joined our church about two months ago. I wonder how many of you even know them. And I've shared with them and Sam has shared with them and they've moved into our city and they come to Sunday school and to church on Sunday morning and they don't know anybody in First Baptist Church except those people in that Sunday school class. And I wonder how happy they are here. I worry about them. I wonder how much they feel at home, how much they are apart. I wonder how much we really feel a oneness, a sharing, a partnership. Now this koinonia ran one, ran one of two ways. It was the sharing in something with someone or the sharing with someone something. It was the sharing in something with someone. It might be a grief. It might be a loss. It might be a tragedy. It might be a joy. It might be a promotion. But they were so in oneness that they shared in everything that happened with one another. It was just a part of what was a part of one was a part of all. Now, I don't know how that happens in a church. It's amazing to me that here were these 3,000 people all of a sudden who were just brought together from out of all walks of life, some Jews, <coughs> proselytes, and some Gentiles, and so, many of them strangers, but all of a sudden they were just one together and they shared in the things that happened with each other. And they shared with one another something. The scripture says that they begin to sell their possessions and whenever a person had need, he could look to the church and have that need supplied. Wouldn't that be a beautiful thing? And there was a third priority that went on in the church. It was called the breaking of bread. The breaking of bread. Now verse 46 describes what that means. It means they had their meals together. They ate together. I mean they went from house to house eating. And they just ate and shared together. But they did more than that. They, they participated in that mysterious experience of, 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 the, of the bread and the cup. And so that when they finished their meal together, they, they had a common loaf of bread, just a loaf there. And they had a common cup of the juice that was left over from the meal. And at the end of their meal, they, they partook of that bread and they and they took of that common cup it was it was much like what we experience when we when we receive the Lord's Supper on Sunday night in the church it almost seems like heresy here they were doing that in their homes together have you ever tried that with your friends have you ever done that have you ever had anybody over from the church for a meal and after you finished the meal you brought out a loaf of bread and you each took of that bread and you remembered the body of Jesus and you took it together and then you took the juice, you know, Coke will do the same. It doesn't matter what the, what the, ju what the, what the cup is and that one common cup you passed around the table and you received it together. Have you ever done that as a family? Let me suggest something that might be dynamic for Christmas when you have your Christmas meal this, this, this Christmas. 
when you finish your Christmas meal and all your family is there together, have that common, have that loaf of bread uncut and bring it out and you pass it around the table and in that mysterious and solemn moment you each take a piece of it and put it in your mouth and remember the body of Jesus and then you have that common cup of juice and pass it around and share it together and something dynamic happens when that happens. I don't know how God uses that but I know He does. And they had a third, a fourth priority. It was the priority of prayer. And these little groups that began to pop up all over the city of Jerusalem began to meet together for prayer. And there was excitement and enthusiasm as they prayed and saw their prayers answered. Something marvelous happens when you pray together, doesn't it? Something happens when you go out on a date, young people, and you pray with your friend. Something beautiful happens. Something exciting happens, husbands and wives, when you pray together. Something marvelous takes place when you pray together as a family, doesn't it? There's something special about having somebody to come by and see you and come in your office, maybe down at your work, in your, in your office at school, and you just close the door and you get down on your knees and you pray together. Something beautiful takes place when you have somebody to pray with. Now these are the priorities of the church. They begin to teach the Word of God and they begin to have that koinonia, that fellowship. And they took meals together and they celebrated the, 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 the uh, Last Supper together and they begin to pray. Now I want you to notice the result of it. We'll hurry and finish. You got your pencil ready? At verse 42, where it says, devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, I want you to take a pencil and draw an arrow, circle the word teaching, and draw an arrow to verse 43, because verse 43 amplifies what happens when we begin to teach the Word of God. I want you to take a pencil, take that pencil and circle the word fellowship and draw an arrow to verses 44 and 45. For that tells verses 44 and 45 amplify what happens when there begins to be dynamic fellowship in the church. Circle the words breaking of bread and draw an arrow down to verse 46. Circle the word prayer and draw an arrow down to verse 47 and we'll see the result of what happens when the church begins to practice the priorities of New Testament Christianity. When they begin to be instructed in the Word of God, what happens? Two things begin to happen. They begin to be gripped with a sense of fear, of awe. Fear gripped them and a sense of awe came upon them. When they begin to teach the Word of God, they begin to develop in the church and in the life and heart and mind of the people a sense of reverence and fear and awe of God. Somebody said to me the other day, you know, what, Pastor, what frustrates you the most? The thing that frustrates me the most is to come on Sunday. I'm sure you Sunday school teachers can identify with this, can't you? Sunday after Sunday, 
and open the Word of God and teach the Word of God and it kind of be received with a kind of a yawning indifference to it. Just kind of a blah, blasé attitude. And he taught and they taught the Word of God and they were gripped with awe. They sensed something supernatural. They, they had those goosebumps come up on their, their skin. They were gripped with fear. They were awestruck. And the second thing that began to happen was that God began to authenticate His Word in their midst with miracles and signs. Now when the New Testament was brand new and the church was brand new, miracles and signs authenticated the apostles and the message the apostles preached. And so these miracles began, signs happened so that God could say, I'm authenticating these men and what they're saying. I'm not sure that that still has to happen now because the Bible has been received and it's authenticated now. But I do believe this, that when the Word of God is taught in the power of the Spirit, God authenticates His Word with supernatural things. Notice, when they experienced koinonia, look at verse 44, and all those who had believed were together and had all things in common, and they began selling their property and possessions, and they were sharing. Selfishness just went right out the window. And when they ate together, look at verse 46, and day by day continuing with one mind in the temple, breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together. Notice the result of, of, the, of the eating together, breaking of bread. Two things. There was gladness. What is that sound coming from the houses of these believers? Why, it's laughter. It's a strange sound in the context of this day because these Christians were having it pretty tough. They were getting, they were getting it from every side. But you come up on the house of a Christian and what you heard was laughter. And if you could look on the inside, inside the windows, you would see Christians there enjoying each other. Where are the pictures of Jesus laughing? I want to see some. I'd like to see somebody, I'd like to see a picture sometime of, of Jesus arm wrestling with the disciples. I, I, I think he might have done that. I think he had a good time. That doesn't... That doesn't uh, intimidate or, or offend me to think that, that one day Simon came up to Jesus and kind of nudged him and said, hey, have you heard this one? And they just shared in a good belly laugh together. I think they enjoyed life together. And so as they began to eat this bread, there was laughter that went from house to house. You know where the fun is? You know where the happiness is? It's where God's people are being God's people. 
And the second thing that happened when they ate their bread together was sincerity of heart. That's an interesting word in the Greek. It means no rocks. It's used in pottery. It means that all the lumps were out. It was purified. And so there was joy and there was purity of life. And they continued in prayer. And what was the result of that? God began to get praise. When the church begins to put as its priority prayer, God begins to get glory for it. Now the application there too. <coughs> Number one, a healthy Christian is a balanced believer. It's not all instruction, there is some involvement. It is not all horizontal, it's some vertical. It's not all fear, it's a lot of fun. A healthy Christian is a balanced believer. Secondly, an authentic Christian, I want you to underline this in your mind, an authentic Christian knows harmony and happiness like no one else on earth. An authentic Christian knows happiness and harmony like no one else on earth. There's joy that's deep like a river. And there's a fellowship that supports and nurtures. There's nothing like it on earth. Now let me invite you tonight to respond to Jesus Christ. You've come in a physical adult. You can become a spiritual baby, a child of God tonight. You can be born again. You can have a brand new life if you receive Christ into your life, if you receive Him. My word to you about him is that he is the Savior, the sinless Son of God who came, lived, and died, rose again, lives in heaven, is coming back. And God has sent him, his only Son, to pay the price for our sin and to purchase us a place in heaven. And he stands at the outside of your life seeking admission, wanting to come in to live in your heart. Would you open up your life and by prayer tonight, by faith, receive Christ? My second invitation is for you who've already received the Lord as your personal Savior to publicly declare your faith, to become a part of a believing fellowship. I can say this honestly and truthfully. I believe this is the sweetest fellowship of which I've ever been a part. And I've been in churches since I was six or seven years old. I love you and I sense in you a caring, loving spirit. And I want you to receive those tonight who would like to come and place their life in our care and our fellowship. I'll ask you to come if you're a believer, but you're not a part of a local congregation, a local fellowship of church come and place your life here. 
so we can nurture you and love you and help you grow. <coughs> and I ask you as a Christian tonight who has been a receiver but not a giver, who's been on the receiving end of the blessing but you've not been a blessing to others, to rededicate yourself to God's purpose for you as a church member, as a believer and a Christian. And after we've had prayer, Jolita will lead us in our song is 76 in our hymnal. You probably don't even turn, need to turn to that. You probably know it so well. And I'll invite you to come forward publicly in our invitation time. Father, I thank you for the word of truth, for the scripture's plain teaching concerning the church what we get, what we receive together as believers and where we should place our priorities and emphasis. And I pray now for the ones who need to come forward publicly, making their stand, taking their place, doing the will of God here, that you'll give courage and grace and strength to respond. Because I ask in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, for his sake. Amen. Now in the spirit of prayer, you stand and we'll sing together and you come. <clears throat>